1: Welcome, everyone, to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Tripp. Today, we'll be discussing The Time of Enlightenment, Constructing the Future in France, 1750 to Year One, by William Max Nelson, Associate Professor of History at the University of Toronto, and the book is published by University of Toronto Press. Welcome to the show. Thanks.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
1: So before we dive into, uh, our, uh, questions, can you discuss and address this, uh, compelling image for your cover?
0: Yeah, sure. The, the, you know, choosing the, um, the kind of cover or helping play a role in the press's, uh, you know, creation of it is actually really one of the fun parts. Cause of course the book is done by then and you get to, uh, to think about interesting ways of translating the ideas into images. Um, with time, it's pretty hard, I, I think. Um, a lot of the really obvious uh, kinds of images for time, you know, a face of a clock or a, a watch, um, are kind of simple. Uh, and I'm also not really talking about clock time, so I didn't want to give the wrong impression. Um, so I was trying to think of something that was, um, in some ways, you know, visually intriguing, but a little bit uh, more abstract and could kind of get at some of the the interesting characteristics of time that I was trying to, to talk about in the book. And so this was a, um, a, an illustration from Tristram Shandy. So from the same era as I'm working on, but from, you know, a novel, uh, in England, not, uh, not a work in France, or which I'm primarily writing about. Um, but it, it struck me, there were a few interesting, um, Kind of they're best, just called squiggles. I guess they're kind of like lines that have um, have complicated the idea of linear development. So they're not just a kind of straight line of progress. Um, in the novel, it's about uh, the kind of development of a story or the the kind of trajectory of a story. Um, but I kind of you know was adapting it loosely in some sense to to think about historical time, which is the the subject of my book. So this one that's on the cover, it uh, it has loops and um, kind of bumps and it's not the straight line and also it has a kind of curious um lettering so there's kind of some of these bumps and squiggles uh, are um you know labeled a or b c d um <clears throat> excuse me and uh i wanted to get into the some of the kind of complexities of historical time and and trying to i guess part of my my interest in the topic and the, what i'm trying to do in the book is discuss some of the ways that time was more complicated than maybe we think about it uh, being understood in the 18th century, uh, particularly the kind of very well-known idea of progress, uh, kind of linear progress of kind of one, you know, one direct path moving through uh, history and some kind of singular line uh, and this seemed to point at at least some of the complexity that I hope would uh, intrigue people uh, and then the the book designers uh, created a nice kind of um, setting for it and kind of used that uh, to to build their design around so it was, it was fun.
1: So let's just dive into it. Prior to the late 18th century how and why did French savant believe That ideas and ways of thinking could progress in a stadial manner and become more refined, more exact, and more improved without fundamentally becoming different. In your response, if possible, can you um, explain the two senses of indefinite um, Mm -hmm. and how mid-18th century signs of the degeneration of France, as well as that belief in the degeneration of the human species, resulted in ideas of uh, human voluntarism?
0: Yep. Thanks. That's a, that's a great question. There's there's a lot in there. I I think the um the first part of the question really gets at um one of the necessary first steps in trying to understand how people in the 18th century were thinking about time and particularly these um it's kind of you know the physicists and people involved in uh, in the sciences. One of the interesting characteristics is that they believed that everything could be changing, yet always stay the same. And, you know, if put in these kind of simple blunt terms, it sounds contradictory, but, you know, they, they had an understanding of historical time in which there were certain fixed limits to the amount of, of change, to um, to kind of how different things could be. Um, and a lot could happen within those boundaries, but there were these these kind of erected uh, limits that were, in some sense, you know, for a lot of people were uh, natural limits that um, that the divinity had put in place, uh, even for those people who kind of maybe were deists or um, sorry, not just deists, but the, those who kind of were secular, didn't necessarily uh, have an interest in thinking about you know, a divinity's role in either creation or the kind of unfolding of the world. You know, they, they might uh, have a very different um, a kind of explanation, but they still oftentimes thought about there being a fixed limit to how much could change. Uh, and sometimes this, this kind of, was expressed in very, um, very con- kind of concisely and specific ideas. Um, so one of them was, um, species, animal species that, um, you know, the idea that although the characteristics and the, the appearance of animals within a species might change some over time, you know, they, they stayed within the fundamental, uh, limits of that species so that, you know, a dog would never be developing flippers or, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of wild breathing apparatus, you know, out of its back, um, that, you know, dogs were going to remain within some kind of uh, dog-like appearance uh, for the foreseeable future. But kind of working within this understanding, they built a whole series of ideas and propositions and developed a couple of uh, kind of practices that ended up uh, helping to open up uh, and kind of move beyond those limits, or at least allow them to think that that people could move beyond those limits, and kind of true novelty could be instantiated in the world, could be brought into the world and constructed, and that human beings could kind of play some kind of role in this this uh, this construction and controlling it, and kind of bringing about certain things in the future that would be you know very different from from uh, what they were like in the past, um, so that you know to kind of continue on that line just for one second, that also pertained to knowledge. So they would think of uh, kind of ideas of nature becoming more and more exact, more and more precise, more closer and closer to the truth, perhaps. Um, So they would be improving, uh, although they're not necessarily um, kind of overturning, you know, fundamental ideas of of nature. Um, They didn't have any kind of idea of the... Uh, radical discontinuities and thought uh, that we might think of between like, you know, Newtonian physics and quantum mechanics or something of that sort. Um, And so when they're thinking about progress, they also have ideas about um, how far it can go and what does it mean that progress could be indefinite. Their kind of horizon continues to expand through the 18th century and they're thinking about uh, the fact that that progress could be indefinite, but it's important to remember that there's two senses of that term and they were kind of, generally unsure of what um, what kind of progress, uh, what kind of indefiniteness there there was, right? You could be approaching a fixed limit, uh, a fixed limit, of the, you know, the amount of change that could occur um, and never quite reach it. You could kind of approach it, you know, in mathematical terms, it could be asymptotic, right? You could kind of continue to get closer and closer gradually, but never reach that limit um, or it could be indefinite in the sense of going on forever, uh, maybe having no limit, having no uh kind of you know possible um, uh, amount of change that uh, that could not be gone past uh, and Condorcet was for instance, one of the people that articulated this uh in one of the most famous works at the end of the century, kind of speculating very enthusiastically about progress and indefiniteness, and you know, very hopefully, uh, but nonetheless saying it's it's not clear which which of these uh, is is the case. So it was still kind of undecided uh, the the latter part of the, the 18th century. Um, and then I think you you had mentioned as well about degeneration. That was one of the the major, um, I think, one of the major kind of contextual um, developments that. Got a lot of the philosoph in France thinking about um, how things change and how they could that kind of process of change could be controlled maybe in some way or at least influenced. So they they recognized a significant significant amount of um, kind of negative change in the world around them. Um, You know, sometimes this was expressed in terms of language that the language uh, was degenerating, was getting worse. Um, Sometimes this was in terms of kind of France's power uh, military, you know, they had some uh, kind of, uh, challenges to their military supremacy and by the, the middle part of the, the 18th century people were wondering about uh, their kind of uh, ability to, to for instance kind of fight in their imperial wars with the British um, and it also manifest in, in the, the natural world and, and what they saw as the kind of um, a degeneration of beings around them so people were concerned that humans were becoming weaker smaller um, that they were not as healthy or uh, strong as they were uh, in the past uh, and so too with animals uh, that domestication particularly had um, had harmed animals and slowly they were becoming um, kind of in these these vitiated forms that were that were less capable of remaining healthy that were less uh, robust that were not as strong or as as big um, and so there was a concern with this and it seemed to be this this kind of uh, situation this kind of Widespread degeneration that was affecting all realms of of kind of particularly French life at the the middle part of the century. Um, people got quite concerned about it, and a number of philosophers were attempting to address kind of elements uh, of this degeneration, usually just within you know a specific realm. So. Uh, Buffon, the naturalist, uh, was particularly focused on animals that seemed to be degenerating and and how that degeneration could be countered and people could take kind of control uh, to regenerate animals through selective uh, breeding, through kind of types of crossbreeding, and Economists, political economists as well were interested in, in trying to find ways to, to kind of revive the economy and to, to make it stronger and more self-sustaining. So, yeah, there was a, a whole range of ways that degeneration was a, a kind of a spur for for these projects and was really leading some of the philosophers to think about and be interested in ways that humans could affect regeneration and bring about kind of uh, improvement.
1: Prior to the late 18th century... How could French savant emphasize change within limits for nature, natural laws, and the mot étageur, yet still emphasize sort of dissimilarities between the past and the present? If you can provide examples of the assumption of the spatial temporal uniformity of nature and even justice, that would be great.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe the – so Buffon came up with this, this idea of uh, le moule intérieur, which is the interior mold or the internal mold, uh, which is a, a strange kind of concept, but it was a um, – he was trying to understand how species reproduced. He was trying to understand how individual um, beings within a species – uh, reproduce. And he came up with this idea, this internal mold, um, kind of intentionally uh, pointing at this, not exactly paradoxical, but this kind of contrariness, right? That it's not a, a mold of something like an exterior mold. Uh, usually, you know, you would have a mold, you would put something into the inside the mold and the mold is on the outside, but he's talking about something uh, that works and molds from the inside. Um, and he was using this, developing this concept to try uh, to kind of Theorize a mechanism, a biological mechanism, to explain reproduction—the reproduction of, uh, you know, offspring from two parents. Um, excuse me—and think about the ways that that relates to the species and species identity over time. So he was interested in animal species, uh, not just thinking about species as a kind of abstract, unchanging, universal thing or a category, uh, but rather actual animals. In the world who are reproducing and linked genealogically over time um, and this this kind of the Moore uh, provided him a, uh, a conceptual means to both to understand and try and explain um, this kind of process where you know a species would have uh, certain kind of limits and a certain kind of identity and imprint that would um, be reproduced in all of the subsequent, Um, individuals within that species yet there could be still lots of variation and so he was interested in the ways that the moor is kind of inherited from the parents it's it's doing its work to to reproduce the kind of the the offspring Um, but environment can play a a kind of role in um, the the actual um, the the work of this internal mold uh, in in bodies and and how the parents um, kind of um, you know material is coming together to reproduce a child or to produce a child. Um, so food, um, particularly, uh- Quality of the air, the heat, the temperature—all of these kind of things uh, could could affect uh, reproduction, could affect the body and how it's reproduced. Um, and so it was one of the ways that he was thinking about constancy and kind of an unchanging element, which in this case was the mule. The mule of the species never changes, um, but individuals and the individual um, kind of acts of uh, reproduction um, can can vary within these these kind of limits. Um, and so there's a similitude, you know, similarity over time, uh, but as well some some possibility for for dissimilarity. Um, the the role of uniformity is interesting because the there's a kind of uh, maybe counterintuitive process going on. Um, a lot of the philosophers who ended up creating ideas. And practices that were kind of presenting the future as something that could be constructed and could be made to be different, um, were basing those ideas and building on an idea of similarity, uh, an idea of the uniformity of nature and natural laws. So, kind of you know, more or less an assumption that nature and uh, natural laws will remain unchanged. Um, and one of the the things that this provided them was. A way to then um, kind of use that as a foundation for change. So the similarity of the regularity of a natural law, the fact that it will be uniform over time, right? The law, natural law that exists today or law of nature that exists today and that exists in 10 years uh, will be identical and the fact that it will be identical allows us to then use it to try and create um, differences, to try and create uh, kind of transformations. So um, in political economy, for instance, that, you know, they they were some political economists like the the physiocrats were trying to identify what they saw as kind of the, the laws of the economy um, and that they were trying to find these kind of regularities and principles that would allow them to then alter Elements of uh, kind of human economic uh, behavior and the kind of governments' uh, taxation policies and things like this that would kind of build on those those natural laws to bring about future states of the economy that were going to be different uh, from the past. Uh, in their case, they were trying. They started out trying to kind of recuperate old states of a balanced economy, uh, and they ended up kind of creating this instrument called the the Tableau Economique, which was. Um, an attempt to try and visualize the economy and economic exchange uh, in a way that the economy could be understood and the, there could be kind of alterations uh, in this, this simulation or in this this model of the economy that could point towards different policies that would lead to economic uh, balance in terms of like reproduction of the economy every year or um, or in fact kind of growth. And so they were particularly interested in and things like tax policy and investment in agriculture as, as ways to, to do this.
1: We'll go through that in a few minutes. Mm. Can you provide examples of the, quote, Simultaneity of the Non-Simultaneous, end quote, in conjectural and travel narratives that featured migratory indigenous peoples. You know, your, your book also includes chronological charts that situated Native Americans in a timeless natural man present that they're just opposed unto the roots of historical time and stages of subsistence. If you, can, if you can address that, that would be great as well. And then also, what about non-indigenous, I guess indigenous so-called vagabonds?
0: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, the, the simultaneity of the non-simultaneous is <laughs> is, is one of my my fame uh, my favorite uh, things to, to think about in um, in the 18th century. So the term itself is more associated with Ernst Bloch from 20th century Germany, trying to kind of building on a Marxist tradition, trying to think about historical and economic development, and thinking about the ways that people could exist at the same time that seem to be uh, living in, in a sense, in different stages of historical development. Um, So you could have, you know, it's kind of, in some ways it's kind of a common idea and it still persists that, you know, oh, you have some people who are living as if in the past, you know, whether they're in the middle ages or not. uh, And some people who are living in the present. Um, And I find this a really interesting idea, one, because it's so, strange and counterintuitive in some sense, right? That like we are all in the present. What leads people to think that, you know, some other group of people uh, are are in some usually, you know, earlier, the, the idea is usually that they're in some kind of earlier time period. Um, I wasn't investigating it for the same reasons Bloch was. He was using it to try and understand the rise of fascism particularly. Um, I was seeing the roots of it and the development of it in the 18th century and really Wanting to point to that, highlight that this is one of the features of Enlightenment uh, ideas, particularly about progress, which um, I, I don't think has been has been done before, and and try and understand uh, kind of the ramifications of it and the particularly the, the kind of odd idea of time that that results from it. It's kind of a. An odd uncanniness that, that emerges. So the idea um, in the in the 18th century was really um, kind of emerging from uh, people who were comparing European societies to particularly uh, groups of people in societies in the New World, uh, in the Americas, in what the Europeans were calling the New World still, um, and trying to understand difference. Uh, that difference was of many sorts. And they were um, trying to understand how uh, kind of all of these different types of peoples and ways of being and means of subsistence and economies fit into one kind of historical uh, story and one kind of idea of progress. And the in the 18th century, there kind of there became a formalization of this idea that they started to think about progress occurring in stages. So we call the stadial progress, uh, stadial theory of progress. And the basic idea was that, um, the means of subsistence determined, uh, was kind of the foundation, which determined, uh, the rest of the character kind of social, political, uh, cultural in, in our terms, um, of society of, of a, a group of people. Um, so that, you know, if you were, if agriculture was dominant, then uh, certain kind of social and economic and political forms were possible uh, and more likely. Uh, if kind of pasturage of animals and raising of animals was, then there was another uh, next kind of more advanced stage. Um, sometimes this was a three-stage, sometimes this was four stages, uh, but uh, commerce um, and uh, trade were were kind of uh, integral to the kind of conceptions of the most advanced stages um, of, of this progress, and that's usually what um, the, the kind of philosophers reserved the term civilization for the, these more advanced kind of commercial phases, particularly. Um, and one of the, the very odd things about the articulations of this idea is that they are presenting people, particularly uh, Native Americans, were oftentimes the, the people being discussed um, and Europeans as living at the same moment, so maybe say 1750, but as if in different stages in history. Um, so particularly once they thought about these three or four stages, and they treated them as more or less successive and uh, kind of a necessary uh, course that any people would go through from the kind of more basic agricultural ones to the more advanced and developed uh, ones of kind of you know what they called civilization more commercial based um uh, societies in which the you know the the arts and sciences thrived um they once there was kind of one direction and one path uh any of the peoples that were seen to be at earlier stages were treated as earlier stages of uh, kind of historical development. And sometimes this was very explicit. Sometimes, you know, there was kind of comparisons um, between various uh, Native American peoples and ancient Europeans, right? The the kind of similarity between them being um, argued for by these or a, Assumed sometimes by by these uh, European philosophers, um, and that that itself was a kind of long uh, loose metaphor or, or analogy uh, of kind of European travel literature and things. But in the eighteenth century, it, it took on um, a new implication in this larger system of of thinking about progress, and so you had this very strange um, kind of temporality emerging where people in the Americas were being treated, Native Americans particularly, were being treated as if they existed in an earlier stage of history, so they were in some ways the past, yet of course they lived in the present. So they were both past and present. And Europeans, by implication, were um, in the present, of course, but they were by implication in relation to these uh, people who were Native Americans, uh, they were, the Europeans were, um, would be the future they would be the future that these Native Americans might be able to progress into, right, in this more advanced stage of society. Um, so there's this weird way that Europeans were thinking about themselves as the future, and they were in some ways living a version of the future. They were living, in this case, a version of the future that, you know, other societies might eventually uh, kind of enter into Um but of course they were living at the same time as those other societies so they were both the future and the present and it's this very kind of um, uncanny kind of disjunctive uh, sense of, of time um, and I think that it was it was one of the um, one of the developments that um, was kind of uh, playing a role in the opening up of a previous, understanding of history and historical time, uh, and kind of making possible a rethinking um, of historical development, historical time, and what the future is or might be. Um, also, an interesting case, you, you bring up the vagabonds. I, I wanted to mention maybe the the case of uh, Letron, one of the political economists uh, who was a part of the physiocratic school, wrote about vagabonds, uh, by which he meant people without a fixed home, uh, without property, without regular employment, um, and particularly without a kind of um, letter of attestation that they were, you know, a good upstanding member of their community. Um, These people were... Uh, a kind of concern of administrators uh, around, particularly kind of came to a head in the 1760s. And Le Trun wrote this, this work about them uh, trying really kind of demonizing them and trying to, uh, to imagine a new state policy that would crack down on these, these people and would put them into these work camps in which they would be, uh, he called them slaves of the state. Uh, they would be forced to, to carry out labor for the, the state. Um, and, one of the the fascinating things in, about his discussion of these these vagabonds is that he he treats them as he says that they they're as if they walk in the the state of nature as if they live in the state of nature, which is the kind of mythical uh, time uh, before any of the stages of progress have have begun. So whether there are three or four stages of of historical development before that is just the state of nature in which you know uh, there's kind of there's pure pure nature, but also any, any humans who lived in it would have, uh, would have lived in such a basic way as to, um, you know, a lot of philosophers thought not even uh, kind of resemble uh, uh, more developed, socially uh, developed uh, human beings. Uh, they were almost closer to, to animals. Um, and and LeFran was characterizing these vagabonds as, as being like that, being these kind of wild, natural criminals that were kind of more like voracious insects or wolves, um, and there's this very interesting way that although many of the philosophers who are talking about progress are treating France as a civilized place and French civilization uh, was, you know, advanced and in some ways the future of, of maybe these, these um, societies that they thought were less developed, um, at the same time, Latron is saying, well, actually, there's people within France who are in a much earlier stage of development? In fact, are so far back they're not even kind of on the, on the the, the course yet uh, of the the several stages, um, and they live amongst us. They're right among us, so that kind of within the same territory, within the same space, there's there's proximate beings who are of a much earlier stage of of history. So you really kind of see this uh, the the strangeness, the uncanniness uh, of this idea of the kind of simultaneity of the non-simultaneous, uh, particularly in this case where those people who are supposedly kind of further back in time or representing some kind of stage either early in history or bef- before history uh, are right amongst you, right? They're, they're existing, coexisting in the same space and time, yet they're, they're of this supposedly representative of, of this era. Um, so this was something that um, it wasn't a an extensive part of the discourse of progress, and they didn't use the term the simultane of this non simultaneous, but I think it's a major characteristic of their idea of progress, and um, I think it helps us understand some of the complexity and strangeness of their ideas of historical temporality uh, more than maybe a, a very kind of like simple traditional story of the Enlightenment developing a notion of linear progress. Right, this is. Um, a kind of very complex mix of times that can coexist uh, and emerge from this supposedly simple idea of progress.
1: Yeah, totally. In terms of visual culture, German art historians of the early 20th century also use that phrase. Mm. Um, In the context of late 18th century European conceptions of commercial exchange and property, please explain how the Caribbean hammock trope became a European construction of the absence of foresight and incapacity to engage in commercial agriculture among Indigenous peoples, women, children, and those with uh, cognitive disabilities.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's it's one of the parts of the story that I think is um, is more disturbing and more revealing of how these kind of ideas of time were very much entangled with notions of power, with um, the kind of history of colonialism. The I I found this so there's a a, a passage uh, I first came across it in Rousseau I believe uh, in what's usually referred to as the second discourse this discourse on the origins of the of uh, inequality. Uh, And this is a conjectural history in which he's thinking about what uh, it would have been like for humans to exist in the state of nature this time before kind of, you know, historical development, before economic, social development, um, where people were just kind of living isolated in the woods. They hadn't even come together to form, you know, quote unquote society yet or societies. Um, And it's, it was a very influential work. It was very widely read. Um, But it's a very strange one. And part of the strangeness is because as a conjectural history, he's trying to envision a past that he doesn't have evidence for. And he's having to fill in uh, and kind of take what he, you know, in a sense are educated guesses or what he thinks are kind of uh, these logical, um, uh, these logical either deductions or sometimes inductions. Um, And one of the, the lines, it's kind of a passing line, and it's always stuck with me. And it was about um, what he called a, a carib or a carib. Um, and it's a story about a hammock. And it was just a line, but it always seemed uh, kind of out of nowhere. And it, it seemed to stick out a little bit. Um, it was He was trying to represent how a, a, a native person in the Caribbean uh, did not have the kind of foresight that modern Europeans had, and that this uh, this native person, and this he calls it Carib, the kind of blanket or general term for native uh, people in the Caribbean, that the uh, the native, the term that Europeans used for them, um, that he sold his hammock. That they were he was happy to sell his hammock in the morning, uh, but by nighttime, he would uh, be crying because he hadn't foreseen that he would need it that very night. And it's just this kind of, you know, mean, denigrating line that um, it, you know, kind of is a maybe powerful exemplification of what Rousseau is trying to argue, but then he moves on. Um, and it always stuck with me and I, I, I looked into it more and I wanted to know, you know, why, what is this based on? Um, and there's this whole kind of development of it, um, both after Rousseau so, and uh, a kind of uh, existence of it before, he he took it from some early French ethnographic, pseudo-ethnographic uh, kind of travel literature. Duterte was the the person who uh, seems to have first come up with this kind of anecdote. Um, and Duterte lived in the Caribbean, and he he wrote this kind of um, this kind of anecdote about. Um, uh, Caribbean native Caribbean people, the Kalinago would be the the people that he would have that he was living amongst, um, uh, not wanting to sell their hammocks at night, but you know doing so in the morning, um, and then being upset in the evening when it came, um, because they they didn't have their their hammock. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating is how this got transformed from from the 17th century to, to Rousseau's kind of revitalization of it and, and compression of it into uh, you know a sentence, in a sense, uh, in the 18th century. He he eliminates uh, in Duterte, there's a European trader and there is a, a, a Caribe man, um, and they're interacting with this kind of hammock. Um, Rousseau eliminates that. So there's a kind of an elimination, a writing out of the European colonial presence in the Caribbean. The kind of there's no rapacious trader who's responsible for purchasing this hammock and you know willingly kind of taking advantage of of this uh, this Caribbean person. Um, that is kind of written out, uh, but also Rousseau writes out uh, has very clear uh, recognition in the anecdote, his original anecdote in the 17th century, that um, there was something else going on here. It wasn't that the Caribbean person didn't foresee that they would need their hammock in the nighttime. It's that they wanted their hammock back later in the day uh, because they had probably not ever thought that they were selling it or giving it away, right? There's probably a, a discrepancy between the notions of property and ownership uh, and, and kind of what the... The European was understanding as a purchase or an exchange. Um, the the Caribbean person, you know, might have been thinking of as a as a kind of temporary trading, right? Didn't necessarily um, have the same understanding of of this being a sale of their hammock for good. Um, Duterte even talks about the ways that they have a different notion of property that's not uh, this kind of um, individual. Notion of individual ownership that they share things amongst themselves. It's it's very clear uh, in his own articulation of this that um, that the the, um, the European trader is taking advantage of uh, the Caribbean person. Rousseau writes all of that out, just kind of distills it into this this little core, and turns it into a parable about foresight. It's the lack of foresight of the native Caribbean person that uh, is the kind of takeaway from the story. And this gets taken up in uh, French philosophical discourse and um, becomes popular and Kant ends up using it as a a kind of example of uh, of the lack of foresight. um, A whole number of Scottish uh, philosophical uh, people who are writing about um, kind of history and the, the stages of history and trying to understand Native Americans as well kind of repeat this. And the the Caribbean the hammock becomes this trope that expresses the lack of foresight, supposedly, uh, the lack of foresight of uh, the native people in the Caribbean and all uh, people who they refer to as you know, savages or those who live in this kind of earlier stages of development as they see it. Um, and it's really an, an explanation about their lack of foresight The contrast to European foresight, the importance of foresight, and Rousseau inscribes foresight um, in the story of progress so that foresight is the reason you get out of the state of nature and you start moving through the stages of history. So agriculture, the really important thing uh, in the development of agriculture is that people had the foresight that they should settle down and start growing these crops, and that it would be to their their benefit to, to tend to them over this long period, and they would end up having them be able to harvest them, and that this would be um, some kind of great benefit to them. So it was a a story about the role of foresight and future orientation in bringing about historical change and in bringing about development and progress. Um, Another kind of very unpleasant um, element of this, the story and the way that Rousseau recrafted it is that he was ignoring, as did most of the European travel literature at the time, the fact that these, these people, in this case, the Kalanago, who were um, uh, native people in the, the Caribbean, they did in fact have agriculture. They did have some uh, kind of form of of agriculture um, and that they they were not simply nomads just wandering around. They had fixed camps that they moved usually seasonally from, it seems. Um, And that this was, so this characterization of them was kind of inaccurate um, and it allowed for time to be mobilized as a means to differentiate Europeans and non-Europeans, particularly in this case, uh, people, Native Americans and people in the Native Caribbean. Um, It was also a uh, kind of explanation that you can see in other uh, writing about um, groups of people who are being kind of put into a secondary status whose humanity or kind of full status, uh, as, as human beings is being either undermined or qualified. So the, the kind of the fashioning of a European universal subject as the kind of, uh, you know, white male who's well-educated, um, and able to reason, um, is being, constructed in opposition to uh, a set of people, a group of people who supposedly don't have the ability to uh, a foresight, who don't have the full ability, therefore, to reason about future events. Um, so it wasn't just uh, this, you know, Carre, this native person from the Caribbean. Uh, the, the kind of arguments also are made about women. So that women don't have the same uh, kind of ability to to foresee the present and kind of dwell on it; that they live much more in the sorry, or the foresee the future; that they live in the present, um, but also that children don't have this ability. Um, that um, people who have you know what we would now call kind of intellectual disabilities, uh, cognitive disabilities, uh, they as well you know lacked this ability, and and animals, of course, uh, and there was this this way that. Um, uh, various non-European peoples were being connected to women, were being connected to children, were being connected to sometimes the the poor, and sometimes um, these people with uh, kind of what we now call the mentally ill and, and those with cognitive and intellectual disabilities. Uh, they were all being put into a secondary status based on this inability to foresee uh, and to use their kind of um, ability to, to reason about the future. Um, so I, I've... I tried to identify this in what seems like a very small and, you know, easily passed over kind of oddity of a text like Rousseau's or in Kant's or in, um, or Salambert, these, these people who are, who are writing, uh, who are employing this, this kind of idea, uh, or Robertson. Um, but it, it seemed to be a very, powerful exemplification of what was going on and how time and power were um, kind of uh, entangled
1: in this case please explain context for the physiocratic movement that you alluded to earlier their attempts to recover lost economic balances in the future and the ideas that culminated in the shift from 1758 zigzags and graphic formats in and pressy and formulae and ultimately to uh the you already I mentioned this the uh, tableau économique representations of annual agricultural revenue uh proprietorial net product taxation and productive versus sterile cap- capital distributions which mm. i guess counterintuitively resulted in future deficits
0: yeah thank you Th- this is a this is a complicated topic to talk about um because the the tableau économique the economic picture is probably the best translation of it um, Tableau usually being uh, used in this kind of sense of picture or painting, um, not just a, a table, um, at this time period. So the economic picture was a device that uh, François Canet, uh developed precisely because he thought there was a um, uh, something that words could not express. So it's it's difficult now to be expressing it all in words, but uh, I'll try. So. What he was trying to to do was find a way to convince people uh, of certain features of the economy and to exemplify certain natural – what he saw as these kind of natural laws uh, about the economy. Um, He thought that they were very hard to grasp in – discourse and written words. Uh, He was also concerned that language wasn't precise enough, that we, you know, maybe we don't all know what we mean when we talk about value or we talk about, you know, uh, investment or or commerce. Um, He wanted to find a way to represent economic activity. And in fact, the kind of economy of France as a whole in one single picture, um, in a way that would give people a sense of uh this kind of whole topic and what could otherwise be very abstract, right? You know, we never see the economy as a whole, of course, it's spread out uh over time and space. Um, but he wanted to try and somehow represent it in a single image. Uh, and it's an image that is itself a hybrid, it it employs um lines it employs numbers kind of columns uh, rows he ends up uh, having uh, written descriptions as well um, so it's this, this fairly complex visual um, representation um, he had himself had he was a, a surgeon he kind of had a, a successful career as a um, you know practitioner of um, kind of a doctor, uh, in some sense. I mean, he was part of this dispute between doctors and surgeons at the time, but ends up becoming, um, a physician, uh, in, in Versailles. Um, and his earlier kind of professional career or his, the beginning of his, his life away from his family, uh, was spent as an apprentice printer. And so the Tableau Académique is kind of coming back to the visual for him, uh, trying to employ some of his sense of, of, um, kind of organisms and the functioning of the body and trying to represent the functioning of the economy, uh, with these, these tools. And one of the the very interesting things is that he, he's first trying to create this tableau économique in a form that he calls the zigzag. And really what it's meant to show is the, uh, the exchange, uh, the kind of division of money between the agricultural class within the economy, and that uh, class that's that's he calls the sterile class that uh, the people who are involved in manufacturing or the arts or crafts. Um, he thinks that he calls them the sterile class because he doesn't believe that that wealth is uh, generated through investing in uh, in manufacturing or crafts uh, through kind of the labor of of people in the in the workshops. Um, he thinks that they use up. As much as they uh, produce, in some sense, um, the only real source of wealth, the true source of wealth, is the Renaissance, the the kind of the Earth itself, its ability to constantly be reproducing and to be uh, kind of fecund and abundant. Um, so that like anything that's invested in agriculture will, uh, if you know, farms and things are managed properly, will return a surplus. And that's the, the real true source of wealth that needs to be harnessed. So he was interested in trying to uh, find a way that um, that he could convince people to put more money towards agriculture and that tax, tax policy should as well be kind of uh, transformed uh, to encourage this and, and a kind of whole set of, of um, in a sense, policy prescriptions that were supposed to derive from this. Um, all he was trying to do in his mind was return France to a state of prosperity uh, that it had lost in the 17th century and that um, was just about reproducing the same kind of um, uh, kind of overall income, uh, wealth in the economy every year. It was kind of a balanced static state, right? Where the, the economy would not be growing, but it would also not be shrinking, it would just be reproducing every year. Uh, so in some ways, this, this tableau was just envisioning a type of uh, similitude or similarity, you know, through historical time. But as he and his uh, his collaborator Mirabeau developed their ideas and their system, they developed different forms of the tableau, the tableau were particularly Canet's uh, kind of uh, realm, um, he ended up finding different ways of trying to express these things. And he ended up kind of creating these versions of it that were supposedly simpler and simpler and simpler. And uh, they were kind of more abstracting um, so that they could uh, demonstrate the effects of various policy transformations um, kind of uh, more evidently or more quickly, uh, more easily be deciphered by people. Um, This, this ended up kind of then creating a situation in which he thought these tools could be manipulated in ways to show growth or uh, kind of contraction of the economy, and this as well kind of could point towards ways that the future could uh, could be transformed, that the future states of the economy could be in some ways kind of controlled and constructed. Um, so this is one of those those kind of contradictory cases where you know in trying to recreate this past state of balance, uh, he ends up trying or ends up kind of creating a tool that seems to be representing the future as something that can be constructed and, and made to be quite different.
1: What was the significance of physiocratic abandonment of extant uh, historical methodologies in uh, the uh, and the so-called abusive words? And responding to this question, please trace the uh, physiocratic turn to successive meetings in the semantics of political economy, those natural visual uh, neologisms and the idea of the simultaneous simultaneities of present and future in a in like hieroglyphs as well as even chinese characters
0: yeah this is this gets into one of those very um it's it's very characteristic of the time period um the abusive words it sounds like such a strange um kind of uh, thing to be obsessed with um but in the seventeenth and eighteenth century, there were a lot of uh, a lot of philosophers, a lot of philosophers, a lot of people were really concerned with what they saw as problems with language, and therefore um, the kind of the social and political problems that could result from it. Um, the abuse of words meant kind of many things to many people, but oftentimes it was about a concern that um, words did not always signify exactly what. Uh, or they, they could signify a number of things at the same time. Therefore, um, people who were who are hearing or reading um, kind of language uh, could be misled. They could be misunderstanding what the language is supposed to mean, what the author was was uh, meaning to ex- express. Um, but also, there's a concern that people could be intentionally um, kind of contorting language to. Convince others of things that are not true, you know, just by the kind of the 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 tricks of rhetoric and language. Um, and so there was, you know, a lot of a lot of what resulted from this were people concerned with uh, greater precision and clarity in language. Um, but Kene also thought that um, language had its limits. And he wanted to try and find a means of convincing people that both avoided the possibilities of the the abuse of words and the kind of misunderstanding, uh, and that was also more direct and that uh, people could grasp very quickly. And he thought visual means of communication uh, had this ability, as did a number of people at the time. And and like a number of people in in this era as well, he was interested in hieroglyphics and hieroglyphs. and this sometimes you know this term could be used to refer to specific um, to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, but it also sometimes was used to refer to any style of writing that they took to be um, a kind of uh, visual form of writing like Chinese ideograms or um, or ancient um, um, Mesoamerican uh, forms of pictographic writing um, so these kind of forms were, so Egyptian hieroglyphics, for instance, were not deciphered uh, in this time period in the 18th century, um, but there was a lot of interest in them and there was some sense that they were able to communicate uh, as natural signs, that they were able to somehow um, kind of have a part of uh, nature in the sign itself, that there was a, a more direct means of communication. Uh, there wasn't a kind of arbitrariness to the uh, connection of a word with the thing in the world that particularly because of the graphic nature of it uh, the graphic nature could imitate or exactly replicate you know something in the world and therefore there was a way for these um, kind of graphic signs to more directly represent things in the world and therefore possibly communicate uh, ideas about the world as well and so that was part of what he and, and his collaborator to a degree were trying to create um, something that could speak to people's eyes and kind of get around um, the possible misunderstandings, but also the abuse of words and to try and he had, he had this, this notion of kind of needing to create a sanction. So if you're going to try and convince a ruler to change their policies around taxation, um, you need to have something that compels assent. Uh, compelling assent is a, is a, Kind of concept that Lorraine Dastin, in the Great Historian of Sciences, has, has talked about in a, a somewhat different context. But I find it very useful uh, to think about what Kene was was doing, and he was trying to to convince rulers that these uh, these things being modeled in the Tableau Economique were um, were kind of indisputably proving that certain tax policies needed to be implemented um, so he was trying to get around kind of persuasion he wanted to compel a scent of rulers by getting around language and getting beyond it uh, completely and uh, and so he he was interested and even talked about his tableau amica as hieroglyphics which I don't think exactly helped because a lot of people found them difficult to interpret and they are difficult to interpret um, so of course you know a lot of people were happy to compare them to you know ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics that were still indecipherable at the time, for instance. But uh, I think he, he had a, a different idea of what he meant by hieroglyphics, and he was trying to get at this, what he thought it was a more direct and natural form of communication that could compel assent uh, and express nature in the clearest way possible.
1: What role did the sensationist certainty of evidence for advantageous natural laws based on passively received ideas play in the deduction of conjectural futures as well as attempts to control revolution and inexhaustible progress?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I guess this relates to some of what we were just, what I was just talking about with, um, Was was particularly concerned with trying to make these these presentations, um, that could not be disputed. And evidence was uh, a notion that he and the other physiocrats, those kind of members of this political economic school that he co-founded with Mirabeau, um, evidence was a key concept of theirs. And they were kind of developing this from, from previous philosophers that were thinking of evidence really as self evidence. So evidence was um was something that was self-evident and um could be you know maybe self-evidently true. So he wanted to to create uh, a kind of a political economic system uh that would present this indisputable, obviously true evidence that um would force people to to take action. Um I think this is one of the the reasons that he ended up creating this tableau économique, one of the things he was, he was after, uh, in, in doing so. Um, and I think because of that, because he wanted to create this kind of, um, self-evident natural sign as he saw it, uh, it's what led him to create and to refine these tableau économique, uh, which ended up having, I think somewhat, uh, counter, not just counterintuitive, but, um, uh, effects that were not just those that he foresaw right he, he ended up kind of creating these tools that made the future seem like it was something that could be controlled and um, uh, constructed through through actual things that rulers uh, and farmers and uh, wealthy landowners uh, could do. So this this rather abstract philosophical notion of evidence played a, a part in the formation of this this tool for uh, kind of, representing the future differently and, and kind of opening up the possibility that the future could be uh, refashioned and kind of controlled or at least influenced by uh, by people in the world.
1: What examples can you offer for uh, the uh, Camte uh, de Baffon, his interbreeding experiments and subjects like uh, wolves with dogs, yeah. um, his Lebanese dichotomy of the real and the abstract, and the studies of causation for future successive variations you know, or G generations in a given species. I guess this is all limit limited by the immutable uh, mold, interior mold of a species pro- prototype created by God.
0: Yeah. So this is one of the um, this is one of the the, the kind of book I, I I have a chapter on the physiocrats. I have a chapter on Buffon that are both um, both of them are, are kind of these. These case studies, he focuses on what I see as these kind of real-world practices and attempts to construct, in the case of the physiocrats, this economic model, um, in the case of Buffon, he's trying to understand um, animal degeneration and how to counter it through animal breeding. And to. You know he's interested if it's possible to develop practices that can counter degeneration, and I think it's it's really interesting to try and and necessary to try and take something that can seem so abstract like time, right? Um, historical time, everyday time, they're both quite abstract and they can be so difficult uh, to kind of to grasp and to to talk about in readily graspable ways. And what I find fascinating is the ways that, that we, can, we can think about these rather abstract topics um, in relation to very tangible, sometimes, uh, real world um, kind of practices and concerns. And in the case of Buffon, he was interested in, um, in you know, actual breeding experiments. To uh, He kind of got into them to try and understand degeneration. Also, to try and understand where the kind of natural boundaries of species uh, lay. So, you know, was the wolf related to the dog? Were they of the same species? Um, he was one of the the people that uh, kind of argued strongly that if if two animals could um, could reproduce uh, a an offspring that that self could reproduce, uh, then they that was proof that they were uh, the, those original you know two coming together were uh, of the same species, um, and so he was interested in kind of empirically investigating this. But <clears throat> one of the things that that his work that he ended up doing is is thinking about ways that you kind of can return domestic animals to some healthier earlier state. But in fact, he he then kind of takes this to to think of ways that you could make animals better, that you could um, isolate for specific characteristics through forms of selective breeding, and kind of controlled crossing of varieties within a species, um, and bring about combinations of characteristics that had never existed before in the world. And so this is another example of, of somebody who's, who's not setting out to you know, bring about some radically different future, who, in fact, in his explicit philosophical work is saying that, you know, species exist within certain limits and there's no true novelty in this regard. Uh, it, there won't be in the future. There's not going to be any totally, uh, you know, new species or uh, or kind of um, species transforming from, from one form in, into uh, what we would think of as kind of evolution into another uh, species. Um, and yet he... Was working on uh, these kind of practical experimentation experiments and theorizing about them um, in a way that was presenting the possibility that humans could take control of animal reproduction in a way to bring about uh, characteristics that never existed before. So, although they might not, that might not be radical novelty. That's at least uh, a kind of uh, a type of novelty, uh, and it's it's a, a kind of way that the future could be made different through um, through this kind of animal animal pairing. Um, and part of what I try and do in the, that chapter, you mentioned the kind of Leibniz and Leibnizian uh, distinctions between the real and the abstract. You know, Buffon was so fascinating to me because he's. He brings together so much. He uh, he's involved in um, the kind of you know the study of the most advanced probability mathematics of the time. You know through Leibniz and others. Uh, he's interested in the life sciences and writing about um, these kind of great work uh, about uh, quadrupeds, about all the different varieties of, uh, of quadrupeds in the world. Um, but he's also interested in um, in kind of philosophical topics about life, about reproduction. Um, he's kind of bringing together a lot of things that we kind of by our modern um, categorizations think of as different disciplines, different fields, and different domains, uh, philosophy, mathematics, the life sciences, and natural history. Um, and also a concern with these very practical things like animal breeding. Animal breeding had existed for a long time and, you know, at least antiquity, who knows exactly when it began. Um, but it it's something that, that kind of people who were involved in agriculture were aware of, um, but there had not been a Uh, A kind of systemic or systematic understanding of it. And in the 18th century, there's this kind of new attempt to try and understand it systemically so that um, it could be kind of controlled in some way so that you can control the outcome of breeding. So you could carry out selective breeding, controlled kind of crossbreeding. And also people like Buffon were trying to uh, connect this empirical um, kind of empirical studies and the the experience that they have in the world with um, philosophical and theoretical uh, work. They're they're theorizing about um, how characteristics are passed on from parents to children. You know, they don't know. They don't have a notion of genes yet. Uh, they don't. Um, have a compelling uh, mechanism to try and explain this. And so they're trying to, to figure out uh, how this might happen. And the, the Moule Intérieur is one of Buffon's attempts to, to do this, to try and understand how what he calls organic molecules in the body are, um, are kind of brought together in the right groupings in the right form to start forming the, you know, the parts of uh, the body of an offspring. So you know the, the feet, the hands, the organs uh, within the 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 mother's womb, um, and trying to understand that process and trying to, to kind of genealogically connect the generations. Um, and this is something that he's doing largely with animals, but this is actually what uh, has kind of led me to my next book, is that a lot of people uh, were taking this uh, this idea and this kind of work on animals and saying, well, if we can control animals in this way, if we can do this kind of selective breeding or, or control crossbreeding with animals, could we do this with humans? Uh, and in fact, we should do this with humans. If we can counter degeneration in animals, we, we should as well be improving you know, human bodies through this this form. So I've kind of ended up going going into this uh, this kind of story of Enlightenment biopolitics that derives from from this kind of naturalistic work that I uh, I first started uh, studying for for this uh, this book on time.
1: How did Buffon undermine the great quote unquote great chain of being? with complex multidimensional networks of shifting lineages derived from foresight and the manipulation of time via the plan manipulation of accidental characteristics and animals. He also engaged with the reductions, uh, reduction of species categories and the production of new, uh, genera. You know, is this epigenetics? Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, how did this, uh, this complex challenge pierced the veil between present and future new nu- nuancing uh, Orkheimer's and, uh, Adorno's contentions and dialectic of enlightenment.
0: Yeah, I think this is a, this is a, a big one. Um, and particularly because the, the, the great chain of being was a, a very, was a really entrenched idea as kind of longstanding, uh, conception, you know, a lot of, The the most famous work on this, Arthur Lovejoy's The Great Chain of Being, you know, tries to to trace the development of this idea from antiquity uh, to the, I forget where it ends, but it's certainly through the 18th century. Um, And, you know, presenting, he presents a kind of uh, a sense that before the 18th century, there was a static notion of the great chain of being, uh, in which there's this kind of um, hierarchy of, uh, beings of uh, what we now think of particularly as, as organisms although I guess in in many versions of the great chain of being it goes up into uh, beyond just organisms into to, to deities and things as well um, angels and deities but um, there's a, a kind of natural hierarchy um, of beings that moved from the most complex at the top to the most simple at the bottom. And humans, uh, you know, kind of fell uh, towards the more complex side of things, of earthly beings. And then you kind of got into the, you know, the realm of, of angels and um, and God. Um, but that this was a relatively, a way of uh, kind of understanding that nature that was static, right? This was a kind of order of nature that always existed and, and stayed the same. And part of what, Buffon and others in this time period, uh, and his collaborators and, and other people were were thinking about was trying to understand how nature was changing, um, not assuming that it always stayed the same, and particularly thinking about um, the history of the Earth and uh, the development of species. So I, I really focused on the development of of species or that the kind of that body of thought, um, because they were people were understanding that there was transformation over time um, it's certainly you know there wasn't a, a theory of natural selection yet there wasn't genes to explain how characteristics were passed on how there's continuity between you know lineages but there was a, a sense of transformation and continuity and they're trying to understand these two things together and they started thinking you know one of the things you can see in, in Buffon is this more uh, a kind of networked thinking they're they're trying to understand uh, the generations of, um, of varieties within a species and they don't think of them as being uh, falling in a simple kind of hierarchy where, you know, one is more complex than the other and it's, so it's above it uh, or kind of being distributed on through on a line of complexity or kind of distributed across, you know, like a table of categorical table. Um, like somebody like Linnaeus is, is, uh, uh, famous for uh, kind of the way he understood nature as uh, kind of employing something like this, a table where each each object had its own place and there was a, a simple static order. Uh, Buffon was thinking about a network and, and the kind of evolving and developing, uh, transforming beings that um, com- made complex and kind of undermined in some ways this, this idea of a static uh, chain of being um, one of the one of the the reasons for this as well is that he thought the animals were such complex interconnected wholes that transformations to even a small part of an animal would affect the the whole uh, constitution of that animal the the whole being uh, inside and outside um, and so there were these kind of these there was a certain um, malleability and there was a a certain kind of um, small changes could produce large effects. Um, And so he tried to think through this and document this in animals uh, and kind of present how, how human beings could try and take control of this, could learn more about it and um, could bring about kind of quite significant Kind of transformations uh, in animals, and it's it's hard to say exactly how you know how this this relates to to somebody like Horkheimer and Adorno's uh, kind of their critique of the Enlightenment. You know, in one way, it, it it quite affirms their their characterization of instrumental reason that this was a kind of vision of uh, humans uh, controlling nature, of kind of projecting um, their uh, uh, kind of desires and trend, intervening in, in nature to, to produce what they want to, to come out and, and what they want to, to occur. Um, but there's also a certain kind of, um, there's also a way that, what I wanted to, to try and also show is that this is a, a kind of opening up as well. There's an opening up of unintended consequences. Um, there's an opening up of uh, kind of possibilities for, transformation, unexpected transformation, possibly bringing about, you know, futures that are kind of radically different. Um, Although I don't know that Buffon was kind of articulating this uh, for, you know, for reasons that we would see as entirely kind of positive or good. um, At the same time, this the sense of the possibilities of future transformation, uh, I think was important and it was, you know, kind of in the longer, uh, trajectory and in the longer narrative that I'm trying to tell, um, part of what I'm arguing is that it's, it's also shifting the conditions of possibility, what people think is possible. Um, so, you know, things like Buffon's idea about animals, uh, and these kind of philosophes, uh, writing about, um, you know, the economy and, and, and time, um, they certainly are not causing the French Revolution, but part of the relationship I see is that they're they're opening up possibilities uh, for thinking that the future can be transformed, that thinking that kind of all realms of human life, human existence, the economy, the natural world, you know, species um, – Uh, social aspects of of society can be transformed, can be kind of intervened in. Um, This could be a kind of negative, you know, quasi-totalitarian thing, but this could also be an emancipatory liberal – sorry, an an emancipatory – uh, liberation, right? This could be uh, the kind of uh, some of the more positive um, visions of the of the French Revolution, for instance. Uh, so the revolution is this really important moment in which you know people come to think that they can transform all elements of the world around them, uh, and that is is in some you know very complicated ways, both good and bad. Uh, but I'm I'm trying to to. Show how that didn't emerge simply from the immediate circumstances of, uh, of of you know 1788 and 89 and 90 as the kind of revolution was taking shape and then kind of exploded in, in 89 um, that it's also there's these kind of um, conceptual and practical things that are occurring in the, in the Enlightenment that are in some ways making radical transformation of the future conceivable.
1: During the French Revolution, how did the new style of metric time and the seasonal Republican calendar attempt to undermine the so-called French Empire of Habits while advancing rationalism as well as cognitive and behavioral regeneration? And what are examples of quotidian activities impacted by this practical ontology?
0: Yeah, so the the French Revolution is is a really interesting time in which, as I said, you know, with the unprecedented events kind of as they unfolded, people came more and more to um, to kind of think that rather than just minor reforms, they could bring about a kind of, you know, radical transformations of the economy, of society, of gender relations, of language, of money, of, of everything. Um, and that's one of the, the really important characteristics of the French Revolution. And one of those things that they thought that they could transform was – Time itself, or at least in, in the sense of measurement, the measurement of time, people's relationship um, to measuring time, and then as well how they would think about time based on those measurements. So the the revolution created... The metric system, and this was a system that was supposed to uh, kind of be weights and measures for all uh, all realms of existence, and they tried to include time within that. Um, so they kind of they tried to rationalize, as they understood it, to, to make the calendar more rational. Uh, so they decided, for instance, to make all of the the months thirty days. Right? They wanted to have a consistency. They thought uh, would be um, uh, a kind of order. Uh, they recreated the week so that the week was now 10 days. So each month month would have three 10-day weeks. Um, and they also tried, there are a number of other Kind of interesting things with the calendar itself, uh, particularly each day was renamed, so it no longer had a named derived from the church, kind of uh, related to to a saint, but uh, now was was meant to kind of bring people's attention to the change of seasons and to to think about what agriculturally needed to be done uh, in that time of year, um, and they also thought about transforming the uh, the time of day, uh, the clock clock time. Um, the calendar ended up being uh, kind of the reforms were in fact put into law. The clock transformations, the kind of metric time uh, of the clock, was only brought into uh, into law and it was kind of made effective for um, for. People who worked for the state, they were supposed to be using it for a time, for a short-lived time. Um, most of them, in fact, didn't, um, and it it was was let go of as well. Um, what I find so interesting about this attempt to create the kind of metric calendar and clock um, is that it is a a sense that everything can be reconstructed, everything can be refashioned, including time itself. So there's a kind of a kind of circularity here that that the Enlightenment uh, developments that were making um, kind of the malleability of time seem um, uh, more apparent. That you know the construction of the future seemed something uh, that was at least possible. Um, that kind of folds back to to the very measurements of time itself um, and these measurements of time were, were really uh, kind of meant to be transforming people on an everyday basis. So you mentioned the, the very interesting phrase, the empire of habits. It's the um, uh, the empire of habit, The empire of habits is, is a, a term uh, that they use at the time period uh, to talk about the ways that people are stuck in their routines. And the French Revolution is famous for Defining for using the term the the old regime to talk about everything that came before it the old regime and to to be trying to bring about this kind of new um, historical era you know their their calendar was beginning at the year one it was starting time anew as my kind of title alludes to um, and so they were they were trying to restart time and they wanted to to affect uh, the everyday understanding of you know of of kind of what you know, the leaders of the French Revolution uh, would think of as kind of the common people, and the particularly, you know, people, craftspeople and, and people in the countryside who were peasants. Um, and the, these new units of time, these new measurements, this new calendar, new metric time, were tools to break people from their old habits, their old routines, their ways of understanding the world, and forcing them to... Adopt new ones forcing them to relate to people and the world differently. So I've called this practical ontology. Um, I I wanted to use that term to to point to the ways that this is really about trying to transform people's being uh, through practices. This is an attempt to implement things, maybe as you know, simple or as as easy to kind of take for granted as a calendar and a clock, that could nonetheless, um, or at least they, you know, French revolutionary leaders believed that these things could radically transform people's kind of being in the world. So, for instance, they, because of their ideas of how um, kind of sensationism, or sometimes referred to as sensationalism, uh, their ideas of of how. Humans came to know the world primarily through their senses uh, and the comparison of sense information, sensory information. Um, that humans were very dependent upon their environment and the world around them. Uh, and Creating a new new structures in the world around them would have an effect on their very being, on their uh, how they understood the world and how they acted and could be in the world. So by creating a more orderly and understandable, easily understandable sense of time, um, that was you know for instance all uh, in terms of the the clock. For instance, it was all um, based on tens, right? Um, that this would Force people that this would give them a kind of example of order in the world. It would be a kind of model for order that would bring about order in their own thoughts. But also, as they went about their their lives, they would be interacting with other people who had to adopt and adapt to this new. Uh, system of time, and that they would have to kind of transform how they were relating to one another and develop new means of of kind of interacting. And sometimes this this might sound kind of very abstract, but sometimes it was very specific. It was It was about kind of you know things like in the marketplace, right? You are you have uh, you have a different means of understanding, um, you know, when uh, you are going to be working from or going to a market or um, kind of the means by which you, uh, you both, you know, you share a kind of sense of time uh, with other people. Um, So yeah, I wanted to point to the ways that that these kind of tools of time and time measurement became a part of this process of trying to construct the future and transform people um, even in a way that's perhaps more radical than uh, we might first Think of uh, when we're when we're kind of looking at the the French Revolution.
1: How does your argument that the French Revolution triggered the explication and application of the construction of the future deviate from German historian Reinhard Koselleck's contentions and even the Heideggerian temporalization of temporality? If you can briefly briefly address that, <laughs> and then um, also address uh, the work of the Abbe uh, Emmanuel Joseph uh, Sieyes, how how he contributed to the kind of pre 1788 89 uh, uh, phase of the uh, the articulation um, of this kind of nostalgia for the past and constructibility of the future
0: yeah thanks this is a this is kind of a heavy question it's a, it, there's, a lot, there's a lot there uh, let me see I'll try and take a few parts of it um, so yeah part of my part of what I was arguing about the French Revolution as you allude to is that um, as these kind of unexpected events occurred, as you know, the kind of um, the the monarchy was cowed, as there was a new national assembly, as there was a declaration of rights of man, uh, as there were these kind of uh, developments that uh, were surprising to people and that kind of exceeded what they might have thought possible. Um, and then eventually when the monarchy uh, gets eliminated and there's a new republic, particularly, there's, there's a sense that, um, you know, this is a a new time that, that, you know, actors in the, the revolution itself kind of recognize, recognize that there was some big break from the past and they felt themselves living in kind of an unprecedented situation. And this, this kind of surprise, this breakdown of past, uh, past understanding, past ways, um, seems to have been a, um, a kind of a spur for them to reflect on time, historical temporality, the future, and to be articulating some of these ideas about the constructability of the future explicitly. So in the French Revolution, you have... Um, uh, a kind of a greater explicit recognition, uh, or a kind of argumentation that um, that you know the future could be made to be different, uh, was in uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, a lot of it was kind of either implicit in arguments or uh, kind of uh, existed in these these practical experiments, but was not always fully articulated in explicit philosophical language. For instance, um, so I I. I very much uh, kind of got into this topic uh, through reading and ins- being inspired by uh, Reinhard Koselleck. I mean, it, I guess it wasn't the very the first thing that got me into this topic, but it was you know he's a historian who's who's very importantly written about kind of the history of people's understandings of time and particularly historical time and particularly the future. You know, one of his very interesting um, um, kind of innovations was to look at past versions of the future. So future is past. Um, you know, how did people in 1760 uh, think about the future? That in and of itself can tell us a lot about their understanding of, of time, uh, even though that future didn't come to be, right? And so I I had been thinking with and against and through Koselik for a long time. And and one of the, the things that I, um, I kind of, one of the ways that I, Differ from him a little bit is is um, that I, I think in the the Enlightenment kind of these ideas about a uh, the constructibility of the future and the future becoming uh, quite different um, kind of emerged and made possible the revolution, whereas he really emphasized uh, the the way that the revolution itself was a, a kind of a turning point that that made the the future uncertain and therefore having to be constructed. Um, So I, in some ways, I kind of differentiate uh, my work a little bit from from his kind of larger argument, Um, but also methodologically. You know, he wasn't he wasn't trying to talk about how this new um, he wasn't trying to identify how this this new sense of the constructability of the future emerged. He was kind of more focused on semantic evidence, trying to to point to evidence that indicated that a new understanding of the future was existing or history uh, was existing. uh, I was I'm trying to, to understand it a little bit more uh, in terms of, of kind of how it developed and the the kind of conditions of possibility for this this revolutionary moment. Um, the Heidegger the Heidegger is complicated. First of all, I think it's probably too, it's too much to get into um, the intricacies of being in time. But in that work and uh, a number of other works written around the same time, Heidegger um, wrote about. Uh, time and everyday temporality um, and historical temporality in ways that are really uh, were really important and played a, a direct role in kind of inspiring Koselik. and one of these one of the important things about his his work was kind of pointing to how the future is in some sense always in the present or already in the present um, that you know we don't need to just think about, time, as in uh, clock time, as in a kind of a linear unfolding uh, of a sequence of nows, you know, where there's, there's a moment now and there's a moment in the future, and that moment in the future is the future and it's not in the present. Um, he tried to talk about how in our kind of being in the world, our everyday uh, uh, kind of existence, the future is also present as is the past. Uh, and there's ways that we anticipate it. There's ways that that presence of the future uh, is a part of kind of our being, our understanding of our being, and our ability uh, to to kind of understand our uh, being as time and in time. Um, Koselic particularly kind of takes some of this phenomenological orientation towards the future, the idea that the future kind of can be in the present. And he he takes this, uh, he collectivizes it, so it's not just about the individual uh, Dasein or, you know, a being in the world, a single individual um, who exists in, in, in the world, um, but it's about a kind of collective. It's about what groups as a whole are thinking about uh, collective existence and, and historical time, shared historical time. Um, but he also kind of takes some of the idea of the importance of the future in creating uh, our idea of transformation over time. So one of the things that, that Heidegger did is kind of emphasized how the future um, was, as he puts it, temporalizes time. It's it's part of what gives us a sense of differentiation between past, present, and uh, and the future, um, that it's not the past that does this, it's the future, and it's it's the thing that really gives us a dynamic sense of, of temporality and experience of temporality. And Koselik, uh was talking about kind of different versions of the future, different ideas about the future, um, being what changes our sense of history. So it's a sense that the future is going to be similar, or a future uh, a sense that the future is going to be dissimilar or could be dissimilar, that affects how we think about uh, the unfolding of you know time, uh, how we think about the relationship between past, present, and future. Um, so I, although I'm not directly kind of employing the either one of their work um, uh, in some kind of like theoretical apparatus, I do find this a. Uh, uh, Helpful orientation to thinking about historical time, and you know that's part of part of why you know in my attempts to understand progress and understand historical temporality in the the 18th century, um, oftentimes I'm looking to what ideas of the future are and, and kind of what how people's everyday practices are relating to some sense of the future, kind of imply or enact some futurity, um, and I think that. It's oftentimes these these orientations to the future that are kind of shifting a sense of time and are bringing about a new sense of time. Um, so, with the 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 kind of. Enlightenment, you you have this the shift going on, and with the French Revolution, you you particularly have um, a kind of radicalization uh, of this developing sense of the constructibility of the future and this kind of articulation and enactment of it uh, in you know many kind of social uh, and uh, political uh, kind of uh, policies in a sense. Um, I think I think that's good. that's that's maybe enough for that for that answer.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so can you um, address sort of the two phases of the uh, the uh, revo- the the revolution in terms of the constructibility yeah. of the future, uh, the uh, Abbe Emmanuel uh, Joseph uh, uh, essays, and then also the total break? Mm-hmm. Kind of emphasize that from the past an enactment of the constructibility of the future, and then provide examples like the seizure of the church bells, the front piece for guys to so the Republican calendar, etc.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the future, oh, sorry, the, the revolution, um, that the topic of the, the French revolution, it's kind of a world unto itself, you know, it's so complex. It's, there's, it's so rich in terms of events that actually occurred as well as, uh, you know, the kind of what we need to go through to try and understand them the kind of hermeneutic aspects of it, the interpretive aspects of it. Um, you know, oftentimes, Uh, people who study the revolution kind of specialize in the revolution, you know, they're, they're just, they, they stay within the confines of, of that, you know, of that one large event for, for either a whole career or multiple books. And, you know, it, it really makes sense. Uh, It's, it's such a complicated and complex um, event or kind of series of events. Um, I am very interested. I, I think I, I think of myself a little bit more primarily kind of dealing with the Enlightenment, but I, I, I want to always be thinking about the relationship between these, these things, the Enlightenment, the preceding, you know, decades, uh, and the the French revolution, um, because I don't want to instantiate some kind of artificial break that there was just simply some discontinuity, you know, where everything started again and, you know, the kind of modernity all of a sudden, um, started or began. Um, the the revolution itself at the beginning uh, it's you know important to remember that it was um, a lot more uh, modest in you know people's c- people's kind of claims and what they were wanting to see transformed uh, was it was not fully radical from the beginning right A r- republic was not all of a sudden or immediately uh, uh, um, brought about instantiated the monarchy, was around for a while, this kind of idea of a kind of a balancing of the National Assembly and the monarchy was around for a while. Um, one of the the ways that I, I find most interesting to think about the, the developments in the revolution and the kind of ways that events um, took on this unprecedented form and really surprised even the people that were participating in them themselves uh, and became more and more radical until it was this true kind of, you know, attempt to completely break from the past um, is ideas about regeneration. So regeneration was one of the key concepts and key terms of the revolution. And, um, you know, scholars before have, have focused on uh, the kind of different types of uh, articulations of this idea uh, Monazuf particularly was was uh, one of the first. Antoine de Beck was was another important one, and they talk about the ways in the in the early days of the revolution. There's such hopefulness; it's almost a kind of magical thinking. There's this idea that the nation is going to be regenerated, uh, it's going to be improved uh, just with these um, these kind of early actions that occurred, and that um, that kind of the. Um, regeneration will occur almost by itself. It's almost a kind of miraculous effect that will come about. Um, And after this kind of early enthusiasm um, and, you know, some of the kind of practical challenges uh, to the revolution, you know, eventually France is at war with all of Europe. There's great economic disruptions. There's a lot of, you know, dissent from within monarchists Catholics uh, kind of some people who are were holding on to kind of Catholicism and wanting to to uh, to resist the the transformations um, you know there's there's a lot of uh, kind of there were a lot of impediments that kept this miraculous transformation from occurring and uh, governments had to to kind of rethink what regeneration was and how to bring it about, and one of the the things you see, particularly um, with uh, the kind of the rise of um, the Jacobins and the kind of entering of the the period known as the Terror, uh, is the the kind of greater in, intention and interest in creating uh, policies that will enact regeneration, will transform people. So. Um, they're interested in, in transforming um, um, language, for instance, and annihilating all of the what they call, oftentimes called patois, but um, it's either kind of dialects or completely different languages that were spoke spoken in France. Uh, they wanted to kind of to bring about a clarified, improved French, and to have everybody speaking it, and to be kind of this be a part of this, you know, regeneration and formation of a new nation. Um, but of course, these projects also hit uh, practical um, challenges. You know, people were often quite resistant to them, whether they supported the revolution as a whole or not. Um, they, it might have sometimes it was just too much. It was too much change, right? To 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 have to kind of adopt all of these these new practices. Um, you know, the clock and calendar are kind of interesting uh, interesting examples. Um, in some ways, they are. Attempts to get by or circumvent um, some of the the kind of resistance that could that could exist with with people. Um, they're they're not as much of a, an attempt to kind of directly um, impose some kind of draconian um, regenerative policy on people, but rather to just kind of shift to the structures that exist around them, and those structures will then. Transform them and their practices in a kind of way that maybe they won't even fully recognize. Right? They might find it a little bit annoying, but but uh, but that they can go along and adapt to this new kind of way of of being. And so I'm particularly kind of interested in, in the way that those um, that those developed um, those kind of those tools that were trying to transform people without them fully being aware of it. Um, the I, you had mentioned, you know, a number of the other kind of uh, administrative um, uh, kind of plans, things like the seizing of church bells. That's just, that's a, you know, one of these interesting kind of, um, not exactly anecdote, but, you know, features of the French Revolution that there was this seizure of church bells. And it's, it's interesting because it, it worked in, it worked in multiple dimensions. It was, uh, it was practical in the sense of it combating, um, the, the church's influence, uh, Church bells were a means of uh, marking the day, particularly around um, uh, kind of worship uh, in uh, in most parts of France. That was the the kind of uh, primary means of public timekeeping. Um, it also was a, um, a so you know the the French Revolutionary government was interested in seizing all these bells because they were kind of would be wiping out the French the the church's control of time uh, but they also had the practical uh, goal of seizing this metal that they wanted to to um, melt down for uh, artillery for for cannons and as part of the war effort so it's one of those kind of um, you know seemingly um, minor elements of revolutionary regeneration that's kind of interestingly focused on you know these these abstract things, like the the control of time and people's sense of time, as well as these very practical things, like um, you know the churches ringing the bell every day and the the need for uh, greater kind of you know uh, metal available for the for the war effort. The the guides to the Republican calendar on the clock were also interesting uh, in that they were. There were oftentimes. uh, I'll just use the example of a a kind of the clock. So the Republican clock was, you know, a ten-hour day. In some ways, it was supposed to be easy to understand. It was supposed to be more rational, right? Why twenty-four hours? Uh, Why, you know, two groups of twelve? Why sixty minutes? Why sixty seconds? Um, So they they wanted everything divisible by tens. but of course this is radically at odds with how people were used to understanding time. Um, not everybody of course was, was had a clock or a, a watch, but, but, um, you know, particularly for those who did, uh, they were, they were having to grapple with this significant difference between a 24 hour day and a, and a 10 hour day. Um, and so the, the, there were concordances. There were these kind of tables that were meant to allow you to translate from one to the other. And I think they're an interesting example because they were, they were provided to try and make this sensible to people. But, part of what I think they do is make it clear how difficult it actually was to translate from one to the other. You know, when you start, when you start looking at like, okay, what would nine o'clock in the morning be? Um, and you have to go to this table to figure out how many hours it is. And then you figure out how many minutes it is. And it, it doesn't have an easy relationship. Um, uh, there's not an easy translation from, from one to the other. Um, the, the government was, kind of interested in trying to find some, some um, a kind of easier forms of comparing the two of time reckoning. Um, some people, they had a competition and, and some people created these watch faces that had the metric time, the kind of 10 hour day on the outside ring. And then slightly inside of that an interior ring, they would have, you know, the old account, the old clock so that you could uh, see kind of, uh, and you know, in one moment you could tell um, what time it was that you were used to from your past time reckoning and what time it is and what they called new time. Um, and you know, these, these kind of watch faces were interesting and they still kind of exist. You can go online and, and find these, uh, it's kind of interesting examples of it. But, um, this was, this was all part of this kind of grand project for re- bringing about this kind of new historical era that was to begin in year one and have this new time reckoning. Um, it, in the case of uh, of the clock, it, it didn't last uh, very long for officials, and it, it was never brought into uh, into effect for for everybody as a whole. So it also is a kind of interesting example of the the real kind of tricky limitations in this kind of radical overhauling of um, of life for people, right? Uh, the kind of the ability to construct the future, uh, to reconstruct everything, uh, of course, can have its its practical limits, and and uh, the the inability of this. Um, metric time to really be realized is, is, I think one of those kind of um, a symbol of that.
1: Your conclusion deals with ideas of temporal, temporal acceleration um, during and after the French revolution, as well as visual cultures and discourses of future retrospection. Um, if you can address how that uh, reconfigured the constructability of the future, like Walter Benjamin's angel of history, et cetera, that would be uh, great. And then also connect it um, if you can, or just at least mention or mm-hmm. elaborate on your uh, future project.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is, yeah. So after the, I, I wanted to write an epilogue where I, you know, I, I discussed some of, um, of how this, these developments in the enlightenment of the French revolution relate to kind of later understandings of time and time reckoning. It's, it's certainly not an extensive passage and it's not kind of like, it's, it's impossible to, to deal with all of the, the variations, even just within, you know, French history or European history. Um, over the course of the 19th, the 20th, and now the 21st centuries. But I, I wanted to, to point to some ways that even as, you know, circumstances have transformed so much for us since the 18th century, um, there are some ways that this, this approach to the future and the construction of the future in um, the 18th century um, kind of created certain ways of thinking about the future and certain dilemmas that still persist and still kind of exist with us. Um, one of the things I go into is kind of examples of, um, of people thinking, kind of imagining themselves in a future moment, looking back upon the present as if it's the past or back upon some earlier time as if it is uh, the past. Um so it's a, it's a something that I would refer to as future retrospection. It's this kind of interesting and odd thought experiment of sorts, right, where uh, people were thinking of themselves in a future in which they were looking backward. Um, so one of the things I think that's interesting about this and that kind of relates to what I've been talking about is that... It you know it's it's a showing it's showing demonstrating the ways that the the future really became something that um, people were beginning to engage with um, explicitly in this intellectual and artistic manner um, much more that the they could kind of not only vaguely think that they could construct the future but they can kind of imagine dwelling in it and imagine dwelling in uh, and looking back at this future from this future time period upon a, upon a past, um, it it creates uh, a different sense of historical uh, time and historical dissimilarity over over time. Also, one of the reasons I wanted to to do that uh, to talk about this kind of future retrospection was to. To give a little bit of a genealogical sense of Walter Benjamin's famous uh, figure of the angel of history, who's flying into the future, facing backwards, and looking at at all of um, all of kind of historical time and history as one continuous catastrophe, um, and you know that this is what we call progress. Um, there's a lot there in in Benjamin's image it's it's like so many of his kind of ideas it's it's so um it's so full um but one of the the things i wanted to do was to talk about or just to give a little bit of a sense of how this developed uh, this idea of of a kind of future retrospection the relationship of kind of flying into a future facing backwards um and also kind of then trying to relate it to some of the um some of the developments uh, around historical thinking in the Anthropocene. So the kind of the idea, so the Anthropocene being, you know, this concept that uh, we as historical, we as sh- you know, human beings are, are geological agents that have transformed the earth. And there are kind of these, these agents that have brought about this identifiable new phase uh, in the earth's history uh, and that, you know, the, the formation and the effects on the environment and this kind of catastrophic um, kind of, you know, imminent um, and ongoing um, um, climate crisis uh, is a product of this very long-term, or at least in human terms, long-term development since, you know, at least the 18th century. Some people put the beginning of it, you know, further back or in the 19th century. Um, but this idea of the Anthropocene, people like Deepesh Chakrabarti have, have argued that, that um, it kind of it challenges our ability to think historically. And one of the things that we need to do to be able to face the challenge of kind of climate change is to be thinking about ourselves in a future world without human beings. And I, I think it's a, a kind of an interesting um an interesting example of, you know, this uh, another kind of slight twist or modification to this idea of future thinking, where you you have to imagine a future. This time, um, it's kind of a, a, you know, not exactly just a, a future uh, retrospection, but it is imagining yourself into a future in which humans have already disappeared, um, and we need to do that. And this is, I think, what's the interesting link back to the Enlightenment uh, and French Revolutionary stuff is that we need to do that in order to better understand where we are now in the present and how we can act differently and behave differently and bring about, uh, at least mitigate the crisis climate in some ways and the kind of mitigate the worst effects of climate change. Um, so, in order to, to kind of get to a better future, particularly in terms of um, this kind of human-induced transformation to the earth, we need to imagine ourselves into a future so that then we can um, kind of get back into the present to construct uh, a different future than the one we seem to be headed towards. Um, So it's a much more complex uh, and involved kind of thought experiment than what they were kind of Talking about or doing in the 18th century, but I, I try to kind of connect to them genealogically and talk about the ways that we're still facing these kinds of dilemmas about kind of control of the future and our relationship to what we have wrought and influenced, uh, particularly in this case, and in, in kind of the natural world. Um, uh, to shift to to your your other question about my next uh, project. Um, As I I mentioned before, it kind of grew out of some of my work on uh, Buffon and animal breeding, and particularly looking at the ways that people uh, took these ideas and were starting to wonder about their application to human beings. So I've written, um, I wrote an article quite a while ago now about um, how some people in Uh, What is today Haiti, but at the time was a French colony of Saint-Domingue, drew on some of these ideas in the Metropole, particularly these ideas about animal breeding, and thought that they could be applied to racially re-engineer the population of Saint-Domingue, which was uh, the majority of the population were people of African descent who were brought there as enslaved people. Um, Then there was a a free population that was referred to by a number of uh, kind of characterizations at the time, but in general was referred to as kind of uh, free people of color, people who had some degree of... African descent, uh, but were not uh, enslaved; had their their freedom and a certain degree of uh, kind of um, uh, not civil right, but civil standing. Uh, and then the the white population, the very small white population of the of the colony, and they were interested in kind of transforming the colony um, by actively intervening in who would be reproducing with whom, and. Um, this is a really shocking and explicit uh, kind of case of this, you know, an imagined uh, biological transformation of a population. And it was really, I, I kind of, you know, kind of came to think of it more and more as this biopolitical project. It's this project that was, you know, using this kind of bi- biological intervention and transformation uh, as a means to realize certain kind of social and political goals, particularly the continuation of the colony, the securing of it, making it more secure internally so that the the white population and the free people of color could be safe from the enslaved uh, majority, uh, but also safe from um, from exterior threats from other kind of empires that wanted to, to seize the very wealthy, um, and productive colony of Saint-Domingue. So anyways, that, that kind of led me to this, this whole much larger, what's now already a a book manuscript on, um, enlightenment biopolitics where I, I talk about a number of other projects that are, um, some of them are as explicit as this about kind of, you know, human breeding that's being envisioned, um, as well as a kind of uh, a number of ideas about how to to transform the kind of body politic or the the social body, the kind of population as a whole, um, particularly in in uh, in, in um, metropolitan France. So I've I've tried to to kind of talk about the ways that some of the biological uh, transformations and kind of shifts in the in the life sciences in the 18th century make possible um, and interact with the history of Colonialism, and slavery, um, a political thought—kind of again theories and ideas, concerns about degeneration—and uh, produce this uh, nascent discourse of biopolitics. Uh, although that's, you know, Michel Foucault's term that he that he kind of uh, enunciated quite influentially uh, in the 70s. Um, they didn't use it to characterize their own projects, I argue that they, um, they very much uh, kind of fulfill the the characteristics of what we mean by, by politics and that biopolitics was actually very developed uh, in the, the enlightenment. And there's, there's already a, a strong connection between um, the kind of the projects that are attempting to bring about improvement, uh, kind of Greater liberty and equality, trying to rethink society um, along these lines, um, kind of where more and more people can be included within the realm of, you know, of kind of something like um, what would be the rights of man or have rights or kind of be citizens, be equals, um, this kind of a greater, greater emphasis on inclusion was linked to various types of thinking about and instantiating forms of exclusion, thinking about excluding people, particularly based on new kind of ideas of race and the kind of articulation of uh, scientific, uh, you know, attempts to, to create a, a scientific theory of, of human variation and races uh, to think about the differences between uh, men and women. Um, and to, to use these as, as means of kind of, um, you know, determining who should be included, who should be excluded, and how uh, people could be transformed. Uh, one of the characteristics of this 18th century or this Enlightenment biopolitics uh, was that there's a concern with um, kind of including people within a something like a social body or you know some kind of a unit, um, transforming them within it, and excluding certain people from that social body. So ex- the exclusions would keep. Um, you know, the, the social body from being uh, affected by, by who's excluded. Um, and once there's a determination about who is included, uh, there could be interventions by the state, by individuals, to, to kind of transform even at the, the, the level of, of individual bodies and at the, the site of reproduction, uh, the population to be better, stronger healthier, to possibly be smarter, to have better uh, kind of um, characteristics, qualities. Um, and I try and show how this developed, how it uh, was more widespread than we've kind of recognized and that it is already a kind of uh, a fully developed biopolitics in, in a way that's a little bit different than what Foucault uh, kind of talked about as the the origins of uh, of biopolitics in the in this in this period, uh, he emphasized uh, more kind of uh, things like public health and statistics and the kind of uh, these these approaches to thinking about um, the kind of population as a whole. And I have a, a somewhat different uh, account that that focuses or reshifts, I guess, the the emphasis on to to try and understand the the emergence of Enlightenment biopolitics.
1: Well, I, I hope you uh, remember new new books in uh, history for that particular project.
0: Yeah, thanks. I would I would love to talk about it again.
1: All right. So the book is The Time of Enlightenment, Constructing the Future in France, 1750 to Year One, published by University of Toronto Press earlier this year. The author is William Max Nelson. Professor Nelson, thank you for being on the show today.
0: Yeah, thanks. I, I wanted to thank you so much for having me. It was, it was great to to discuss the book. I also realized, I should mention, that the, the book is actually available uh, open access, uh, which is really nice. Um, the whole PDF of the book, hyperlinked and everything, is free for anybody who would like to, to go download it. It, uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find online, and um, thanks for having me, Ryan. All
1: right. So, uh, on behalf of, behalf of Professor Nelson – This is Ryan Tripp, your host. This has been a production of uh, New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.